0: Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back, listeners, to the fourth installment in our Star Trek Retrospective series. Today we are discussing Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Brad. And like I said, this is the fourth installment. This is the sequel to Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. Now, if you haven't listened to that review, go ahead and click pause now, listen to that review, and not only that one, but go ahead and catch up on the rest of the series because this is a direct sequel to the storyline at least started in the second film. So you're kind of coming in here at the end of what's considered a trilogy of films if you haven't already listened to those as well. Also, if you want to hear bonus episodes, audio commentaries, our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, go ahead and head on over to our Patreon page. It's very easy to find. It's in the description below. Just for a small monthly fee, you get tons of great access, and even if you stop subscribing, that content is yours to keep. Or even one-time donations really does help us out. It's not free to host this show, but this Monday episode will always remain free, but that bonus content is a fun way for you to get more and to help us out, so we really appreciate that. This film was released November 26th, 1986, and once again, Leonard Nimoy is back directing. This time, the film had tons of writers. Steve Mearson, Peter Krikes, Harv Bennett, who's written the other ones, and Nicholas Mayer. I don't know why it took so many people to write this movie, because it's seemingly the most basic plot of the entire four films now brad i think you'll be surprised to know this film was nominated for four academy awards that is a big surprise to me because i just didn't see it on that quality level the academy awards were best cinematography best sound best sound effects and best original score I guess it's all
1: relative to what else was out that year to nominate. I don't know that year very well at the top of my mind.
0: One of the more surprising ones is Best Original Score, which was done by, um, not by James Horner, who has done the previous two films, who's done a great job with those, but Leonard Rosenman. We thought it was kind of evoking Christmas feelings. It it
1: had a whimsical, almost lighthearted hokiness to it that I I wouldn't have put it together with the storyline of Star Trek.
0: As soon as we heard it over the opening credits, it sounded like we were watching yeah. Star Trek The Christmas Special right. off of TV. <laughs> Very odd. Well, the IMDb score that it holds is a 7.3, which is decent respectable, jump. Respectable, yeah. It's a decent jump from the last film, which was a 6.7. Now, for Rotten Tomatoes ratings, it has an 85%, which is only 5% higher than the last film. Critics didn't think it was that much better now this is kind of confusing the meta score is far different because the Metascore critics gave it a 71 the last film they gave it a 56 quite the difference wow big difference and this is the first star trek film to be registered on a cinema score cinema score was started in the 80s and audiences would come out of the theater and they would give them a like a punch card and they would say on a scale from a plus to f what do you give the film shockingly audiences gave this film an a plus it was wow perfect it was the best in their eyes and you'll be surprised to know audiences have never rated a star trek film this high ever since that
1: blows my mind
0: it does me too we're not going to give you away just yet our thoughts on the film but just keep in mind listeners these are very high critical scores that's uh, been rated very high so far now, the budget for the film was 21 million, domestically it grossed 109 million and supposedly a worldwide total is 133 million. It did very well for itself. It opened number 1 at the box office at 16.8 million. They chose the right time in uh, late November because there was nothing else opening that weekend that even came mm-hmm. close. It seems like they beat the Christmas rush with this film. So the top five for that weekend was, of course, Star Trek at number one, An American Tale, mm-hmm. a lot of fun. We've enjoyed Animated that. classic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I liked that one as a kid. Crocodile Dundee. That was a fun
1: movie. I yep, enjoyed that.
0: Very fun. Song of the South, which is a Disney film. It's reissued. Mm. I haven't seen it, but I've heard it's racist. So, I'm not sure <laughs> if it is. I haven't seen it yet. It's from a bygone era with,
1: when they thought differently, that's for sure.
0: Yeah. And The Color of Money. I, I've heard of it. Does that ring any bells?
1: Uh, yeah, I can't remember the film too well. Was that Paul Newman? I can't remember.
0: Yeah, that sounds I think, right. Paul Newman's it. Well, that was the
1: year I got married, 1986, oh, and wow. as a newlywed, uh, probably some of my film tastes changed a little bit in what I would have gone to see versus what we would have gone to see. Ron and I did not see that one together, I'm sure.
0: It's a bit of a mixed bag for that weekend. You got science fiction, an animated period piece for the family about animals, a kind of out of water fish out of water comedy mm-hmm. disney reissued this film and the color of money i did look it up it is martin scorsese okay. paul newman tom cruise a direct sequel to the hustler now as far as its ranking in the series uh as far as the box office goes adjusting for inflation it's the third highest grossing star trek film and at the time it was the highest grossing wow. of the four mm-hmm. it it did the best at the box office. Now, this is interesting. Nimoy was given far greater control over the movie he could make, and he wanted a lighter movie with no clear cut villain. So, well, he, that was achieved? That was achieved. He wanted something really easy. I don't really understand why, considering Star Trek 2 had a great villain, Star Trek 3 had a really interesting plot, with, well, we won't give it completely away yeah. yet if you haven't listened to that review. But, yeah, this one didn't have a clear-cut villain. And originally, Shatner wasn't going to come back. Hmm. He was not going to come back for a fourth film. And the whole reason was they weren't going to pay him enough money. Uh, yes. So Greed. That's right. <laughs> so Nimoy was thinking of doing a prequel. Wow. A prequel film where it would be about their young young ages, I guess, before they met Kirk. But... Surprise! Shatner got a pay increase. Not as much as he wanted. Shatner and Nimoy got more money, and so he signed back on. And also at the time, Paramount created a new Star Trek TV series called Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh Aha.
1: Very, very big series.
0: Yes, it came out around the same time and did become very big. This is interesting. Originally, Eddie Murphy was going to star in the film. Eddie Murphy? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: I cannot see a comedic actor like Eddie Murphy in that role, but...
0: Yeah, It's interesting. And they thought it would make sense because this film is primarily, I would say, a comedy. So they wanted Eddie Murphy to star in it, actually. And he really wanted to be in the film because he was a fan of the TV series. But he didn't come onto the film. He instead went on to star in The Golden Child. And his character would have been, in the past... And he kind of would have been kind of an amalgamation of Katherine Hicks' character. So she wouldn't have had as much screen time. He kind of, what I, from also what I've heard is he kind of would have been always believing in aliens and UFOs. And so he would have been completely on board. I think I actually would have liked the film. A lot better if Eddie Murphy was on there. I'm not saying so far I didn't like the film, but I'm just saying I think he would have even added he would have added a whole new dimension. Yeah, an extra dimension of comedy that I really think would have worked. Well, listeners, we are going to jump into spoiler territory, so if you haven't seen Star Trek for The Voyage Home and you don't want the film spoiled for you, especially since we've been talking it up as the best Star Trek film considering all of this critical reception, go ahead and click pause right now, then watch the film. It is streaming on Prime Video right now. Come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about it. And before I get into the plot here, I did want to mention one element that was left out, but I couldn't say earlier, was the reason, originally in the script, the reason they left Savik on Vulcan was because in the original script, she was going to be pregnant with Spock's baby. Oh, wow. So they decided to... That would have been a twist. That would have been a twist that I assume they would have followed up in Star Trek Five, but instead they decided to scrap that, which was probably for the best. We really yeah. didn't need that at all. Right. Picking up exactly where the previous films left off, the crew of the Enterprise, Kirk, played by William Shatner, McCoy, played by DeForest Kelly, Scotty, played by James Doohan, Sulu, played by George Takei; Uhura, played by Nichelle Nichols, and Chekhov, played by Walter Koenig, are wanted by the Galactic United Nations Council for their crimes against Starfleet. Particularly out for blood are the Klingons. Meanwhile, the crew is still on Vulcan, where Spock is relearning everything at an accelerated rate. The only question he can't answer is, how do you feel, due to it being illogical? Back on Earth, a massive black cylinder with a white floating ball underneath it hovers above the planet. It is emitting a horrible screeching noise that is causing major disruptions in the sea and with the planet's electrical grid. On their way back home, Kirk and his crew realize the Earth is in peril. They're reverse-engineering the noise to realize it is the song of whales. The only problem is whales went extinct in the 20th century. They figure if they can bring whales back to the future, then the giant cylinder will cease its destructive behavior. Slingshotting around the sun, the crew travels back to 1986, where they are strangers in a strange land, in Dream Team-like fashion, which actually did come out after this film. They traipse around San Francisco in 1986 they discover a marine preservation museum that is housing two humpback whales. The only problem is the whales are being released into the wild the next day, where they will surely perish at the hands of whale hunters. The other problem is the Klingon Bird of Prey ship they've kept since the previous film has its crystals drained. Therefore, Chekhov and Uhura must invade a nuclear aircraft carrier named the Enterprise, as fate would seem to have it in this film, to steal its power, which eventually leads to a rescue mission of Chekhov. Kirk and Spock befriend Dr. Jillian Taylor, played by Katherine Hicks. She remains skeptical, but slowly but surely believes they are from the future. Thankfully, she is a die-hard whale preservationist, so without reserve, she helps them find the whales, and in a not-so-surprising twist, travels back to the 23rd century with them. As they arrive back at San Francisco in the future, no time has elapsed. They drop the whales into the ocean, who sing Back to the Cylinder, which thus leaves Earth peacefully. Back at the Galactic UN, the crew is forgiven their crimes since they rescued Earth. Except Kirk is demoted from Admiral back to Captain, which he is all too pleased about. Kirk is somewhat surprised when Dr. Jillian is heading off to the Academy, since he was hoping she would be his new girlfriend. But she assures him they'll meet again. In a surprise twist, Kirk and his crew are given command of the freshly built Enterprise as credits roll. One of the good points of this movie is some of the lightheartedness humor works. If you want a mindless, silly film, then you could do worse. So on that basis, I thought... Certain elements were funny, and I did like the cinematography. I thought the film was at least shot very well, definitely didn't deserve to win the Oscar for cinematography. But nevertheless, the way they capture them on location in San Francisco works really well, and that in and of itself is a nice break from constantly seeing them being on sets. They're on sets for the entire time for the previous three films. It's always a set. This is cool to see it on location. Did you think there was any good points about this movie that worked? Yeah, I would agree uh, that uh, it was
1: uh, was kind of a neat idea to have them on location and have them back in the very place where actually Star Command is located, that area, but in that time and space. I just hesitated because of the plot. Just seemed a little too. I didn't even mind the travel back and the time, but it was just it just seemed a little hokey for what I like out of a Star Trek.
0: Yeah, and I would agree as well. That was a disappointing element that Star Trek so far has either had a decent intellectual basis or a strong villain or a very intriguing twist mm-hmm. where they had never gone before where Spock had died and been reborn because of Khan's unintended consequences. But this film was so bland with an obvious dare i say ridiculous environmentalist message bland is a good word and definitely
1: there was an environmentalist uh, agenda behind the script but it, it just had that i dare i say made for tv movie feel with the the intellectual level of it just didn't have the big box feel to me not not the cinematography but i mean the
0: script Yes, and I've heard other people describe the fourth film as a made-for-TV movie as well. That's what I felt. And it really does, which is surprising, coming off of the epic Wrath of Khan and the very solid search for Spock. And then we get The Voyage Home, which all centers around—the centerpiece is saving the whales. And out of nowhere in the film, this black cylinder with this white thing, which is never explained since, and it simply leaves— It's like intent on destroying the earth because earth didn't like take care of itself and save the whales because we we were destroying the earth. Kind of a almost neo-pagan worldview of of earth worship in a way. Whereas we didn't take care of mother earth, which that directly comes from neo-paganism. Right. Therefore, we are doomed because of some unexplained cataclysmic reason. So... They're able to go back in time. I was listening to another review of the film, and they said, if they're able to go back in time so easily to save and prevent events, why don't they just do that's that good. every single time? Yeah, exactly. So th- clearly, the writers didn't give this much thought at all. Right? Just I don't know why Leonard to Nimoy deep. <laughs> didn't go very deep with it. I'm I'm very disappointed with that. So that's the bad aspect of the film: is the entire premise is asinine it's ridiculous it's ridiculous there's a good word it's terrible and i couldn't believe it i i had hope in the beginning because it is kind of directly picking off where it started from and they reintroduce klingons as another villain that are at the un place and they want to stop them that plot thread is dropped Mm -hmm. the klingons Mm -hmm. seem to never appear again also i thought it was really weird in the very beginning of the movie the film is like dedicated to the challenger
1: yeah, this the uh, the space shuttle. Yeah, that exploded. Yeah,
0: I don't really know why. Just because this is science fiction.
1: Yeah, there's no real connection between the plots or the story at all.
0: No, no connection at all. And I don't know. That felt, I don't know. It didn't feel completely right to put that at the beginning of because that's kind of a somber moment, and this is a lighthearted mm-hmm. film. Exactly. And it doesn't pay respect to it in any way. Well, you've always heard that the. The writers, uh,
1: through the years I've heard you talk on this uh, this show about it, how they wanted to do this time travel thing. Well, they finally did, Mm -hmm. and kind of a letdown to me, the way they did it.
0: Yeah, one of the original plots for the very first film was they would travel back in time without even realizing it, and they thought they were coming to a primitive civilization. Little did they know they came back to, like, the dawn of man at Earth, and Hmm. Man would have learned how to create tools and fire because of the Enterprise. Wow. That's a little bit more intellectual and interesting than Save the Whales because a black cylinder is destroying everything and right. Earth is like woefully unprepared. Only whales can save it. Very silly, but I guess it's almost in keeping with the time where Back to the Future had just come out a year or two before. Huge film about time travel. True. Very big. Clearly, they're cribbing off of that. Uh, also, I'm thinking of Steven Spielberg's *Goonies*, where mm-hmm. this is almost a very <laughs> *Goonies* like adventure type
1: plot. Yeah,
0: and an I can't even. a good word. And I, yeah, and I can't even help but think of *Goonies* when they drop the whales off and their ship crashes into the Pacific Ocean, and they're. Just playing in the water at the end. Yeah, this could have
1: uh, maybe been a subtitled uh, Kirk and Spock's Big Adventure.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it absolutely could have been. And I I think neither of us could believe it. We're kind of rolling our eyes when they're playing and waving at the whales and hollering. It's unbelievable, listeners. So, Brad, what is your rating and recommendation for Star Trek IV The Voyage Home?
1: Well, this is my least favorite so far, so I have to give it a 5. Pretty low. I just don't see the, uh, the level of intellectual and worthiness
0: that obviously a lot of viewers did. Star Trek IV The Voyage Home is a major disappointment coming off of what I consider to be the best two Star Trek films. I'm sad to report this is almost the worst. From what I understand, people love this film because it's so cheesy and ridiculous. Sure, I can have fun with it, but that doesn't make it a good movie. Right. Maybe if saving the whales hadn't been the centerpiece the entire story hinges upon, then I would have been more invested. But otherwise, I'm not. I still believe Star Trek The Motion Picture is the worst because it is so boring. That film has nothing going for it. Whereas this isn't boring, it's just not interesting. And I I roll at the cheesy jokes. Yes, I laughed at some, but... Mostly I, I rolled. Star Trek IV The Voyage Home receives four stars out of ten with a solid not recommend. Now, maybe if I rewatched it, that four would soften to a five. But upon first viewing, I couldn't believe it. And usually upon first viewings, I'm the harshest towards a film because it's the first time I'm I'm witnessing it. Sure. And technically, we've seen this before. Yeah. And I believe we haven't seen any movies since. I just remember we had watched these on VHS. I I remember next to nothing we did. about That's this. It's
1: been a long time, yeah.
0: So I'm hoping Star Trek V will be better. It's kind of hard to go down from here. It's pretty hard for me to go down from here. I just
1: think it has, you know, and especially I come at it from a long time uh, Star Trek fan who was a kid watching the original show and and the movies the first time in the theater. And just uh, so I always, you know, the first movie, the motion picture had that little bit of anticipation for me, even though I thought it was terribly boring. But I, I did like a few things about it a little better than this one. That's why I rated this one the lowest for
0: me sure the original film probably felt much more akin to the television series it did. and
1: and we knew and even though the the whole viger thing was a little bit of a you know you knew what it was you knew that it where it came from and that it was this old satellite that had been gathering all this information so long which was actually it took them a long time to get to it but it was actually a reasonable idea
0: yeah that premise was better than this premise the only problem is that premise was, like, the last 10 minutes of the movie. Right. it's <laughs> of a long like time a, to get to almost it. Almost <laughs> a two-and-a-half-hour film. I will also say some of these characters are beginning to show their age, it seems like. And, you know, the TV show was in the 60s, and this is in the late 80s. Right. We're, I mean, it's two decades
1: after they were acting in the original series.
0: Yeah, and it's fairly impressive. A TV show has been able to spawn four theatrical films mm-hmm. so far and would go on to spawn, like, 12 more but we'll get to those later so listeners thank you so much for joining us on our review of star trek for the voyage home we want to know is this your favorite star trek film it sure seems like it for uh most of everybody else or did you find this just too cheesy to to find to be a good film don't get me wrong i enjoy a good cheesy 80s film but it just had a wildly different tone than the previous two films that it had set up especially since it's a direct sequel to the third film i wanted to keep within a similar tone and also the plot is has nothing to do with it so it was a really cool plot from star trek 3 and even star trek 2 and then this one <laughs> jumps to wales it just goes off the wall it goes nowhere it's ridiculous but i have no idea what is in store for star trek 5 i'm very eager to see it and from here on out, I haven't seen any Star Trek films until the brand-new J.J. Abrams reboot with Chris Pine. So so these will be truly your first show-
1: showings. These will
0: them. be brand-new films. To me, I'll, I'll be able to see them with fresh eyes and without any foreknowledge of what's to come. So, listeners, make sure to subscribe to us on Facebook and Twitter. And, of course, subscribe to us right here on the podcast right now, no matter where you're at. If you're on Podbean, iTunes google play stitcher whatever is your favorite preferred podcast aggregator make sure to click subscribe so you'll never miss an episode if you are on itunes please go ahead and leave us a five star review that's not for our own ego that is so other people who want to hear movie reviews and join in on the conversation with us are able to find us a lot easier because that does help us get noticed in the rankings for people to see so we would appreciate that review And also make sure to share this episode with your friends and family. We love watching movies, and we love talking about them with you. And especially Star Trek is an intergenerational television series and movie. It was around when my dad was a kid, and now these movies were being made even when I was a kid. So it's able to it's cool to be able to talk about a series that has been running for both generations. That's right. And it's, it's still it's relevant. Rare. And I don't know, I'm hearing talk of Quentin Tarantino his final film will be a Star Trek oh, film. Oh
1: wow, that's exciting.
0: That's kind of exciting. I think that would be pretty interesting. I think he would bring a dimension oh, yeah, to a whole new
1: dimension, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, we've never seen before. So yeah. we'll keep an eye out for talk that about as going well. Out on
1: top. That would be great.
0: That would be. And We will bring – that won't be out for a while, so we'll be done with the series, of course, by the time that movie is made. But we will bring the reviews back for that film if that does happen. So, listeners, once again, thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week for Star Trek V.